Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. We have a very large problem in EM that lies outside the walls of our departments. Our healthcare systems are failing, and this is having profound effects on EDs around the world. Packed waiting rooms, treatment delays, frustrated patients, EM provider burnout, ED closures even, just to name a few of the effects. I'll quote one of our guest experts that you'll hear very soon on this podcast, Dr. Alex Chachanov. Waves of medical refugees are landing on our shores. With the decline and fall of their primary care home, they present to EDs with more comorbidities and in even greater numbers. Those requiring admission often face soiled services, quotas, closed borders. So they wait. And those behind them wait with predictable results. In episode 129, Overcrowding, Causes and Solutions, We dove deep into the reasons why we've ended up like this and discussed some potential solutions for the problem of overcrowding in EM. We talked about some intra-ED solutions and some extra-ED solutions. But that was five years ago, and a lot has changed in five years, like the COVID pandemic. And it's time we revisited the problem of overcrowding and figure out what the future of EM should look like. In that overcrowding episode, we dove deep into what we as individuals can do in the ED and what administrators can do. In this podcast, what we're going to try and achieve is we're going to concentrate more on the entire healthcare system that sort of revolves around the ED in a way. Because it seems to me that we've done just about everything we can as individuals and as ED departments. We need to understand and fight for change at a systems level for EDs to shine. It was James Clear, an author of the popular book Atomic Habits, who said, we don't rise to the level of our goals, we fall to the level of our systems. Canadians, and this was a surprise to me, have the highest rate of ED use of all the countries in well-developed emergency systems in the world, and ED visits are rising rapidly. Now, One of EM Case's missions is to bring together educators, administrators, and researchers in EM to break down the barriers between them and sort of de-silo them, so to speak. So, Dr. Alex Chachanov and Dr. David Petrie are EM docs and powerhouse EM leaders and admin folk. They are two of the authors of EM Power, the Task Force on the Future of Emergency Medicine Care Report at the Canadian Association of Emergency Medicine. This EM Power Task Force is a team of Canadian EM leaders who developed a systems-based approach to the future of emergency medicine, where integrated networks and multiple access points, not just emergency departments, are responsive to patient needs and adaptive to changing conditions. So welcome to the two of you, Dr. Chachanov and Dr. Petrie. It's an absolute honor to have you on EM Cases. Great. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Terrific. Now, 
I'm sure people are going to want to know a little bit more about who you are and your professional backgrounds. So could you just tell us a little bit, uh, Dr. Chachanov, how did you get interested in this topic? Just tell us a bit about your professional background that makes you an excited leader in emergency medicine. I am an academic emergency physician. I work in a tertiary ED in, in Winnipeg. In the 90s, I did go down to practice and train in, in the U.S. Originally, the academic part was for medical education. But while in Boston, I quickly realized that the Harvard School of Public Health was a fantastic place to learn about health policy and public policy in general. And really, that spurred a lifelong or career-long interest in changing things on the ground through changing things in policy. Excellent. And Dr. Petrie, a bit about your professional background and what gets you excited about leadership and admin in emergency medicine? Well, I've been around for a while as well. Uh, you know, back when you could do a rotating internship, that was when I graduated. You know, I've seen the system from several uh, perspectives. I've been a ground EMS medical director, a provincial air medical transport director. I was an academic chair of our department for a while. And most recently, the senior medical director of our provincial program of care, which really started to look at healthcare as a system. But through my experience, I think more and more felt that I needed to understand how systems work and what is the science around systems. And so that's where my interest lies these days is, you know, how we as individuals and organizations can impact change at a broad level, large-scale change, as they sometimes call it, and the importance of complex adaptive systems and, and those kind of a- approaches. Amazing. Obviously, we have two underachievers here on the podcast. <laughs> all right. Now, we have listeners from all over the world, and just so it's clear, the same problems that we face in Canada with overcrowding are true in almost every well-developed emergency system in the world. So if you're listening from the US or the UK or Australia or elsewhere, this stuff is applicable to all of us. We can learn from each other. So please don't hesitate to send your ideas on the future of EM after listening to the podcast. Okay, so how are we going to organize and tackle this huge topic? Well, there are five spheres I'd like to discuss for how to improve EM care as outlined in the EM or Empower recommendations. And those five are, number one, having a coordinated mission. Number two, optimizing access points to care. Number three, accountability across the healthcare system. Number four, disaster preparedness. And number five, adaptation and evolution in our changing world. And it'll become clear what all these things actually mean very soon. Now, before we get into the five spheres, though, I want to do a little bit of a historical background. Dr. Chochenov, could you please summarize for us how we got here in the first place? Like, Let's talk a little, a little bit about the history, a bit about the key problems that brought about overcrowding and the difficulties in emergency medicine that we're facing today. Sure. You know, it's a little bit like the story of the boiled frog, you sort of that slowly increase in heat and all of a sudden it's at a boiling point. We have seen if we look closely at the manifestations worsening over time, but they're really under the surface and they worsen to the point where we have what we know as access block is really ubiquitous. You know, we'll be talking a lot about access block in in the ED, but there's access block for diagnostics and other tests. People are waiting a long time for surgery. There's the decline and fall of primary care and waits to see a primary care doctor that you referred to earlier. And all those slowly decaying parts of the system converge on the ED and they're manifested there. 
And because we have a relatively siloed system that isn't integrated, we fill up the silo and it's full. And then we put up the we're full sign, the virtual T-shirt that says, not my problem. And I think that we probably need some EM T-shirts that say it actually is all our problem. The other thing that's happened over the years, there has been complexity creep in medicine. So our patients are getting sicker and more complex. Uh, and those are the ones we see in emergency that people that are described as low acuity are often high complexity. And there's also complexity creep in the system so that and it's a problem so that, you know, politicians and other decision makers that think that they can address the complexity of healthcare with a simple solution that may be simple and expensive and ineffective are wrong. And it's costing us because we have only so much money to spend if we're going to maintain the healthcare system that we want. So that's the background. The other thing that seems to be one of the sort of key pathologies in this is the lack of readiness. Dr. Petrie, could you please comment on the sort of lack of readiness in terms of that being one of the sort of key pathologies of how we got to where we are today? I think especially with the pandemic, we've really understood now how important building some resilience into systems is, how readiness is part of this. There's a great article looking at readiness from a staff, stuff, structures, and systems perspective and what that means. I think for a long time, we worshipped at the uh, at the altar of efficiency, right? And we found out not only in healthcare, but across broad sectors that single branch supply chains and just-in-time delivery and working people all out all the time is neither efficient nor resilient. And unless we start to build in some of the concepts of, of readiness, which includes search capacity, includes some safe redundancies, includes optionality. That's how systems work. That's how complex systems work. And if we don't build that in, we are not only fragile, but with any kind of stress, we can fail. And I think we've seen that in healthcare. And that's a concept we really have to uh, take to heart in terms of how we redesign healthcare systems. Many of the, the lessons from disaster management are applicable to our emergency departments every day, including lack of readiness and lack of resilience. So that's a little bit about sort of how we got to where we are now with accountability failure, lack of readiness, complexity creep, and population capacity misalignment. You know, there was a great debate at SMAC a few years ago on how to define emergency medicine, which amazingly has never really been defined. You know, on the one hand, EM should be only about acute unexpected illness or injury that requires treatment urgently, that we specifically train for, just like any other specialty. You wouldn't expect a cardiologist to see a patient that has nothing to do with what they train for. On the other hand, many of us have been very proud over the last couple of decades to rise to any challenge, to handle anything that comes through the ED doors. You know, to take care of those mentally ill patients who have nowhere to go, to take care of those drug or alcohol use disorder patients who also have nowhere to go, to do anything for anyone who needs help, you know, to be there for that lonely 87-year-old who has no one to talk to, to be the safety net for all of society because we can do anything. We're emergency docs. We take care of admitted patients in the ED. We take care of frail elderly patients with failure to thrive. We do complex chronic care, disease management, exacerbation of chronic mental problems. 
I think most of us can agree that the ED scope of practice has expanded far beyond a core mission of providing emergent and urgent care. EDs are the first or only health access point for many people, and perhaps we're taking on too much. I think it's important to realize that, contrary to popular belief, less urgent patients are not a significant cause of emergency access block and overcrowding. So, in terms of defining emergency medicine, we have these kind of two opposing definitions. One, on the one hand, again, that we should just be dealing with emergencies, and the other is that we should be the safety net for our communities. And in order to fix EM, we need to be able to define what EM is in the first place, right? So, Dr. Petri, how do you define emergency medicine or how should we define emergency medicine so that patients are taken care of the best way that they can be? You know, the the question always comes up, is less more? You know, another way to put it is, what is emergency medicine? I think you've hit the nail on the head, though, really. You know, this is one of the core moral dilemmas for emergency medicine, uh, and I'll get to that in a second. But I think I would disagree with you that uh, it's never been defined well. I think right from the beginning, there was a definition that was fairly clear. And I think all the major physician associations across the developed world anyways, IFEM, even Oxford Dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, defines emergency medicine. It's just that we haven't designed our systems with that definition in mind. And because we see ourselves, rightly so, as being problem solvers and wanting to help anybody anytime, we adapt. And that has changed what happens in an emergency department, but I don't think it changes the definition of emergency medicine. I would also say that the question itself is a little problematic if we frame it as an either-or question. What is emergency medicine? Is this it or is that it? And so I think it's really important to understand that it really can be both. I actually agree with the initial or the general definition, and that is that emergency medicine is the diagnosis and treatment of unforeseen and time-dependent illness and injury pretty broad definition. It, of course, does include patients that have unforeseen and time-dependent illness and injury. That could be an eye problem, pain. It could be lacerations. It could be all of those things. So using some kind of triage score to eliminate what's an emergency and what isn't, I think, is a poor way to do it. So I think this, this is perhaps part of the theoretical side of this, is that systems do need a purpose and systems need a role. So if we're going to redesign an emergency care system, we have to understand what is the purpose of that system and what is the role of the system. Things that fall outside of that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we don't think those things are important. We just believe that a better system would have other options for many of those issues. And so that gets around to the safety net issue. Um, Metaphorically speaking, a a safety net is different than a pressure release valve. And I think absolutely we must, can, and should play a safety net role in the system. But if you're building a building and people are, or workers are falling off or being pushed off at a high rate and, you know, 50% of your bed hours are being used as a safety net function, then What needs to happen is you uh, create other 
responses than just patching up a strained safety net, right? A pressure relief valve, it, we can't be seen as the uh, universal contingency for every other part of the system. And I think that has been what's happened. So I think we have to be very careful to uh, suggest that emergency medicine has a role and a responsibility in a broader system. Yes, we can play a safety net role as well, that we can't be all things to all people all the time. You know, it's sort of like we've become a victim of our own success. I just got back from ASAP in Philadelphia last week, and uh, one of the speakers spoke very strongly around the issue of, uh, you know, if we continue to adapt and solve the rest of the system problems, emergency medicine will continue to be under such strain that it may not survive. But that's a moral dilemma for us, right? We, we've seen what happens when services define themselves by what they are not rather than what they are, and then uh, closing doors there without any reasonable backup for them. And that's not how we create a, a system that works for everybody. So, so that's a tough nut to crack, but that's what we're trying to get at here. I'm uh, an optimist by nature. So I love what you just said, Dr. Petrie, about being advocates for a better system. I think that will probably be a theme through this podcast. So let's plant that seed in our listeners' heads, being advocates for a better system. I want to move on to the five spheres that I had introduced at the top. And the first sphere is having a coordinated mission. So what we're talking about here is that emergency medicine is embedded in a broader healthcare system. And we should all have a shared purpose, some common principles and coordinated goals. So, Dr. Chachanov, first, how exactly do we develop a shared purpose, uh, common principles and a coordinated mission or, or goals? Like that sounds like a really big ask. So how, how do we do that? The principles of the quintuple aim are improved patient satisfaction, improved population outcomes, getting value for money not wasting money on things that don't produce results, having a robust and resilient workforce, and finally, health equity. So I think that people need to understand that those are our purposes. Sometimes they come in conflict with each other. So many, many years ago, patients were staying too long out of our observation unit. I had a conversation with a senior physician who was very, very good. I said, your patient's ready to go. You've been keeping him here too long. Please discharge him. And what he brought up was this notion that he had a sacrosanct relationship with that patient, and he was not going to discharge that patient until that patient was perfectly suited for discharge. So that doctor at that time didn't understand that patient satisfaction has to be balanced with health outcomes for the entire population, including the people who are dying in the waiting rooms. And it has to be done at a reasonable cost. It has to be equitable. So, so I think uh, you know, a big part of uh, understanding our purpose is promulgating it to the wider medical community that tend to look at their work as doctor to patient and not doctor to system. You know, you say sacrosanct, uh, you know, I think we may need to uh, address the Hippocratic Oath, right? Like the first do no harm to the individual. And so physicians are sort of geared around what that patient-doctor relationship. But I think there's a second part of that is second, do no harm to the system. And those two things are sometimes in, in tension with each other. And that's okay. So how do we articulate those tensions and, and practically... How do we move forward with policies and practices to get beyond that? Love it. 
we've got advocate for a better system, breaking down the silos and having a common purpose. This is all uh, moving forward. Good stuff. Now, talking about the silos in our healthcare system, there does seem to be a lot of conflict between the different silos in our healthcare system, whether that's conflict that might be between your ED department and your radiology department, your your hospital and your government body or what have you. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, one of EMK's missions is to break down silos between educators and researchers, between administrators and educators, et cetera. So Dr. Petrie, how do we best manage intergroup relations so that we do have a coordinated mission to improve our healthcare system and the state of emergency medicine? Like it's easy enough to say, let's break down the silos, but how do you actually do that? Yeah, it really is tricky. This is not an easy one. I mean, we touched upon a couple of things. Part of the problem, of course, as the system is more under strain and gets more dysfunctional, we are all as individuals under stress. And under stress, we regress in the service of the self or we regress in the service of the silo. And it gets, you know, it gets harder and harder to do in practice. Um, Let's think about transcending some of our own, which is understanding the system and working towards a, a broader purpose. I think that's a big part of it. I mean, some of this is just personal development, right? Leadership development stuff, know thyself, heal thyself, uh, grow thyself, and then get over thyself, right? Uh, you know, part of this is understanding that we are here to serve our patients and we can do it better together than we can apart. I know, easy to say, harder to do. And this is where maybe some of the old thinking that old folks like me have, have been ingrained in, it's harder to go there, right? I mean, there's some couple great papers by Lucian Leap on the culture of, I think it's called the culture of respect, part one and part two, which is really about the disrespect in the culture of medicine, why it exists in the first place and what to do about it. Those are fantastic reads and should be core content for every resident and every medical student. And, and right from the beginning, we should be working interdisciplinarily in a way that doesn't sort of entrench those silos as we train, right? Uh, they, they get entrenched in, in what we do, just the way our system is set up. We'll have links to those articles in the show notes. I can't help but interject here um, and just talk a little bit about compassion for your patients, compassion for yourself, and compassion for your colleagues. And that's all interrelated. If you don't have compassion for any of those, it is hopeless to be able to break down these silos and work in a coordinated mission to improve healthcare. So I, I totally agree. You need to first know thyself, have compassion for thyself, have compassion for your patients. And then that leads very nicely into having compassion with your colleagues and compassion to those in other silos. Amen to that. I do want to talk a little bit more specifically about increasing access to primary care, because that seems to be a major problem in Canada currently, and I imagine in other places in the world as well. So, Dr. Petrie, what are some strategies that you think could improve access to primary care so that emergency medicine can focus more on emergency medicine? So first, I'll just repeat something that you said earlier. Let's not mistake that question to mean 
we have to make sure the CTAS fours and fives aren't coming to our emergency department, right? That some people sometimes interpret that question that way. I know you don't mean it that way, but uh, A, they have a very low uh, impact on access and flow in our department. B, many of them are uh, do have time-dependent and uh, unforeseen injury and illness, and, and they're quite reasonable to come there. What we're really talking about is the complex continuing care patient and patients who have been neglected for a period of time. So they start to get complications from a cancer or hypertension or diabetes and that sort of thing. So, so it is an absolutely important issue. It's a vital issue. Primary care really is the foundation to our entire system. We do need some kind of system that has uh, regionally rostered, multidisciplinary healthcare homes for everybody, everybody, every citizen of Canada. So that if you move to a certain district or community, like for the public school system, your child goes to this school because they live here. The same thing with regards to that availability of primary care clinics. They do need to be multidisciplinary and they need to be organized in a way that they are the coordinator and the quarterback of the system and the, and the first access point for the system. So I think we, we would certainly support that and have recommended that. I think something that gets uh, mentioned a little less, there's a great resource on the, uh, again, the College of Family uh, Physicians website around uh, same-day, next-day access and how important that is and how it can be done without compromising the uh, prevention mission they have and the complex continuing care mission they have, right? And uh, it's called Advanced Access Scheduling, and that has to be part of these multidisciplinary homes and and uh, absolutely has to be baked in. And perhaps a third thing, which gets even less press, I think, but maybe more fundamental and foundational to this whole thing, is that there's just a ridiculous relativity gap between specialists, subspecialists, and generalists. And until that's addressed, you will have some troubles in terms of creating a system that really values primary care physicians. But those would be three big things that that make sense to us, I think. Wow, excellent. So regionally rostered, multidisciplinary primary care access, same day next access that uh, that can be done with advanced access scheduling and after hour access, um, and that we just need to value primary care physicians and teams, which goes along with you know breaking down the silos rather than saying oh it's primary care's fault. We should be working together with them and value uh, how important they are in the system. Dr. Chachanov, any comments about how we can improve access to primary care? I think it's worth mentioning that. It's about access to primary care. It's about access to specialty care, you know, urgently after a patient is seen or before they're seen in the emergency department. It is about access to long-term care and community care. Uh, And, you know, the reason that we've taken a systems approach to this is that primary care might be the most obvious example, but you have to have the entire system uh, functioning. And, you know, approaches that we've taken in the past in emergency medicine about saying, it's really bad here, let us fix this, they obviously haven't worked. No system can work unless it's a fully integrated system in which every component is functioning optimally. And when we, you know, have a chance to talk about accountability, that's going to make it, I think, most clear that there has to be accountability to provide what's necessary for the patient flow right along the continuum or everything just backs up. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about accountability. I, I find it fascinating, let's say, that the standard follow-up appointment after having a baby for obstetrics 
and the standard follow-up appointment after major surgery is at six weeks, and it just so happens that the rate of complications at six weeks approaches zero. And so guess where all of those patients go with all of their complications in the first six weeks after their surgery or after they have a baby? So yes, accountability is a big issue, and we will talk about that soon. But before we do, Dr. Chachanov, you had mentioned integration of specialist care. I want to talk a little bit more about health systems integration. So Dr. Petrie, could you just touch on some of the key principles to give us a sense of how we can have a more coordinated system with specialists, with primary care? Like, How does this actually work? I understand there's this concept called vertical integration. What is this stuff? How do we integrate things to make it better? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an important point. We've talked specifically about the role of EMS and how it can start to uh, play a broader role, you know, moving from the old fashioned sort of you call, we haul, that's all approach to uh, EMS and actually setting up EMS as a sort of a care coordination center within the whole system. And there are some interesting examples of this popping up in Australia, the UK, the US, where there is some virtual triaging of patients. And essentially up front, the question is, you know, what's the chief complaint? What's the chief concern? What's the chief expectation? And from there, if it is a unexpected and time-dependent issue, then patients go to an emergency department. If not, they are triaged to primary care. And if it's a specialist, an ongoing specialist, you mentioned, Anton, like a post-operative issue, that's where the call goes and that's where the patient goes. And through virtual care links, they can look at a wound if it's a little bit red at two in the morning rather than sending them to the emergency department. If it's something they need to see, they set a clinic appointment the next day and we'll see them at eight or nine in the morning. If it looks like there's also a fever of 39 and this person looks sick, then they call the emergency department and consult emergency about why that patient needs to come to emerge, as opposed to setting defaults all across the system of just go to emerge if you have a complex issue or an unexpected issue, even though it wasn't unforeseen. There's great examples of this across Canada and other places as well, where primary care can access specialists for ongoing questions as well uh, around congestive heart failure, COPD, some kind of uh, inflammatory bowel disease, etc. Like, not everybody has to come through the eMERGE. The eMERGE doesn't have to be the sorting hat for the system. With true integration, both vertical, but also, you know, real life, real world stuff, I think we can make a big impact and obviously make things much better for patients. Excellent. Very eloquently explained. I love that. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. Related to what you had just said, Dr. Petrie, is our second sphere, which is optimizing access points. This segues very nicely 
And optimizing access points means basically that there should be optimization of the number, the distribution, the capability, the connections and coordination and a proper workforce of emergency departments and other access points in the emergency care system. This is sometimes called clinical services planning. So there's a lot of jargon here, a lot of packed in here, but I want to zero in on optimizing the coordination between emergency departments and optimizing the workforce of emergency departments. So Dr. Chachanov, how do you optimize EDs coordinating with each other and optimizing the workforce, considering that many nurses and doctors and EM providers have left emergency medicine in, in recent years? I think people should know that each one of these factors is important. You know, the number of EDs is important. More isn't necessarily better. Sometimes a whole bunch of poorly functioning EDs leads to worse outcomes. And, you know, the capability of emergency departments is different from big urban centers to rural centers. How do we bridge that gap by allowing an integrated team to be able to manage patients either in front of you or at a distance using the expertise in emergency medicine? And finally, the workforce is important. And we've had workforce planning in medicine in Canada historically has been very inaccurate. It needs to be better. And particularly in emergency medicine, it needs to be better. And we think we have a model to be able to predict our workforce needs into the future, taking into account that because of the reality on the ground, many emergency physicians simply aren't having the same career span as we did when I began my career. I understand, Dr. Petrie, that you've come up with a sort of uh, formula on the number of physicians needed. And it speaks to, in terms of how we should build the workforce in the best way that we can in our systems for emergency to to work well. Could you just tell us a little bit about that work that you've done? And then we can talk a little bit more about optimizing access points. Well, I, I wouldn't call it a formula. I would say it's a model And as George Box has said, uh, all models are wrong, but some are more useful than others. And we believe that this model is a little bit better than what we have been using in the past, as Alex has referred to. There are a couple sort of principles or starting points. One is you have to look at the emergency care system as a single system with many access points, as opposed to some loosely associated emergency departments and or urgent care sites and or virtual care access points. And and so if you think about it at a system level, it starts to lead you towards what's called clinical services planning, to siting, sizing, and synergizing of emergency departments. The simple principle is you can't know how many doctors you need or nurses or paramedics until you understand the size of the system. And the size of the system should be responsive to the population. And so there are a few variables that go in there. It's both the population, the population weighted distances, because that starts to become an important issue. Where might you need an emergency department because of distance issues and not just population issues? And then how they all connect with each other and support each other. You know, mostly in Canada, we've grown, as they say, organically, often with some political expediency around where we put emergency departments. I think we can do that in a more intelligent way. And if you do it like this, you understand how many emergency departments need to be staffed. 
you understand the science of how many hours per emergency need department needs to be staffed. You understand where urgent care centers might fit in. And once you know that, it, you can turn it into a model and a formula, and it'll put how many hours need to be covered divided by the definition of an FTE. And uh, that tells you how many emergency physicians you need in that department, in that district, in that zone, or even in that province. You know, that's really what this is about. All right. I want to move on to, we had mentioned before, EMS. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. You know, I find myself feeling really bad for the paramedics who stand in the ED hallways for hours with their patients just waiting to be taken over by the ED staff. How do you envision changes to EMS that will improve the system? You had mentioned some virtual things that we could do. What are some things that departments could do tomorrow that could improve how EMS flows and how it works within the system? It's a tough question because, again, you can't ask that question without talking about the system, right? There are never more ambulance hallway patients than there are boarded patients in the emergency department. So that alone would change the face of EMS completely as we know it, right? We may have 30 admitted patients in our department who've been there for 40, 50, 90, 100 hours. And you look at that compared to the ambulance offload hours and ambulance offload hours are always less than that. So how can we impact that immediately? Well, there's many, many ways, but that changes the face of EMS right there and reduces burnout, reduces all the issues with community response, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, I think it does go beyond that. I think EMS is really moving on to uh, what was very early, like 20 years ago, they talked about multi-option EMS, where uh, the call came in, you decided, does the patient really need a 911 response, or can we book an appointment with their family physician the next morning? Can we send them to a clinic, uh, etc.? So there's that decision point. The second one is when the paramedics arrive, there may be more to the story, less to the story. Again, some decisions can be made in terms of transfer or not. And even on arrival of the emergency department, depending on how you might set that up, if there's co-located primary care, could some patients go there, right? That's one aspect. It's sort of a choosing wisely EMS, I would say. But there also there's the mobile integrated healthcare and expanded scope healthcare. Again, great examples across the world and in Canada where paramedics are getting more involved, going to nursing homes on a, on a call and suturing there rather than transferring to the emergency department. Where they're getting in Nova Scotia, they've uh, had a great system where they've been integrated into palliative care, which prevents a large number of transports to the emergency department. So there's, there's huge potential there. I would just add to that the potential for paramedics to be part of a team Ideally, but not necessarily led by emergency physicians, by, but by led, led by the person with the greatest understanding of the system and the ability to co-manage uh, serious patients, their ability to extend care, particularly into rural areas and areas that may, may not have an emergency physician 24-7 is really limitless. And, you know, in terms of feeling sorry for them sitting in the hallway, I think that we can feel sorry sort of for all of us, mostly for the patients, because the systemic problem of access block is preventing everybody 
from practicing to the full scope of their responsibilities. And it just really is a pan-system problem. Back to the system. We have mentioned virtual care a few times now. I just want to zero in on how you imagine the best use of virtual care to optimize emergency department care. You mentioned, you know, triaging and some interesting things that are going on around the world. I know that in Ontario, we have something called telehealth and people can call telehealth. And based on what I believe most emergency physicians in Ontario feel about telehealth is that they just end up sending everyone to the emergency department anyways. And so it's not the greatest use of resources and money. How do we make virtual care work well? Because there's you know examples like telehealth, which I feel like most, most emergency providers feel it does not work well. There has been an incredible debate about this within our group and across Canada. I think, you know, theoretically, telehealth and advances in technology should be able to improve things, but it's a double-edged sword for sure. And you have uh, programs in which, uh, you know, well-trained physicians are co-managing trauma patients and coordinating their rapid transport to a center that can provide care. I mean, that's good. Pop-up virtual care entities that tell people to go to emergency departments that are staffed by burnt-out emergency nurses and doctors who just can't handle it anymore, they're not necessarily good, and they reflect problems in the system. You know, looking at it through the equity lens of the quintuple aim, again, people who maybe most need virtual care often don't have access to it. They don't have a computer. They don't know how to turn it on or work with it well. And so one has to make sure that the right people are getting the care. Emergency medicine physicians need to take a leadership role in innovation. So these need to be part of research and QI projects, but they also have to take a stewardship role. It is vitally important that we make sure that that innovation is put in service of the quintuple aim and doesn't just suck money and doctors and nurses from the system. I think of virtual care in this context as being either direct-to-patient or peer-to-peer. In the direct-to-patient category, there is what I would say direct-to-patient from a healthcare home or a general practitioner that knows and understands the patient's needs and will be following them with some continuity of care over time. Or there's more the kind of, again, uh, transactional retail model where it could be anybody calling a patient that they don't know and will not be following over time. The former, uh, you know, there is uh, that recent paper that came out in the CMAJ suggesting it does not increase emergency visits, doesn't decrease it either, but if it's done through healthcare homes in 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 that Ontario setup, it sounds quite reasonable. But the other ones are showing that they actually do increase (laughs) visits to the emergency department. And I think that, not to mention the issues around people put on antibiotics and getting imaging tests and all of these things that don't seem to fit a real true choosing wisely kind of paradigm. On the other hand, peer-to-peer, I think, is a really, really potentially important area. I mean, as Alex says, it's been there for decades with poison centers and trauma centers and air medical transport centers in terms of supporting physicians and making decisions and making decisions around not only clinical care, but transport or not, et cetera. But when you can add in the visual side of it, I think there's even more potential 
bottom line though is let's measure it let's test it let's study it i think that's part of complex adaptive systems change is experimenting and pilot projects and all those things there's nothing wrong with those if you evaluate them and you eliminate the things that don't work or iterate them until they do or you spread and scale the things that do work right and that's i think where our system, in, at least in Canada, has fallen down. We get things that sound like a good idea. Maybe to some people, they're implemented. And then 15 years later, we're still spending $20 million a year on that program, which hasn't actually made a difference. So much food for thought. Let's move on to our third sphere in the future of EM, and that is accountability. Dr. Grant Innes, one of the authors of the EM Power recommendations in our overcrowding episode, beautifully explained how every specialty, hospital floor, and medical program and medical service needs to be accountable for the system to work. And this has come up so far in the podcast. We're not going to go over everything that Dr. Innes had said in the past podcast, but Dr. Chachanov, I just wanted you please to highlight some of the things in terms of how we can move to a system where each specialty and medical service becomes more accountable for the health of the entire system. What are just some of the highlights that are sort of up and coming and the most exciting in terms of accountability? Sure. In no particular order, we've said already that access block is ubiquitous. It's in the hospital sector, the primary care sector, the long-term sector. So one has to create accountability zones throughout the system. Grant uses a term evolutionary stressor. He says that real accountability is the evolutionary stressor that allows programs to respond to the demand and not be able to put up the we're full sign. And I really like that sort of uh, that image. We've talked about the system as a, as a living, dynamic ecosystem that uh, moves and responds the way it does. And if you have a demand-driven accountability zone in which all renal patients from prevention to, to dialysis and, and beyond or uh, looked after by that program, I mean, that really makes them behave differently and it makes a, a ward or a program in the hospital behave differently, but it also goes beyond the hospital. And we have talked for a bunch of emergency docs. We've talked a lot about ALC patients and uh, community care and alternate levels of care everywhere else because those folks, those programs have to be accountable too. And it's not about we have so many beds. It's We have so many patients with so many needs, and we have to resource the programs to be able to look after them and then measure how they're performing and respond either by increasing resources, finding out why people aren't performing uh, or programs aren't aren't performing, or reallocating within the larger system. There needs to be real measurement and reporting of the results, I think, both internally and publicly. And uh, I guess maybe the last thing I've said, and everybody knows this, redundancy in the system. We've talked about, on average, 85% capacity in programs so as to be able to handle surges. And, you know, you just can't have programs that are operating with insufficient capacity and expect to have the results that you want. So closely related to accountability is having standards of care and having good quality of care. Dr. Petrie, 
how do you envision the future of emergency medicine when it comes to maintaining quality and standards of care? Well, I think it's an important principle, and it sort of gets back to the conversation we had about the definition of emergency department and the public expectations of what an emergency department is and and what they should expect when they arrive. Uh, There's such pressure from an access perspective now that I think we risk the possibility of blurring lines between what we might consider reasonable emergency care and what might uh, be passed off as an emergency department or in some euphemistic way, a collaborative emergency center. Many have said that emergency medicine is facing a existential crisis for many reasons. Part of advocating for a better system is advocating for the importance of emergency medicine in that system. Don't forget, in the very first question you asked about history, before the water even started boiling, was the emergence of emergency medicine in the house of medicine in the first place, right? There was a big hole in our system back then. There were many preventable deaths in in what were called emergency departments at the time. We didn't have great ways to teach the core competencies that were necessary. We didn't have our unique body of knowledge fully established and researched and iterated over time. And to me, there's a danger if we don't really declare the importance of emergency medicine and what competencies mean to that and what our research means to that and what we can contribute to that. I think that will be the nail in the coffin of emergency care. We can't let that happen. So that can be manifested through standards. I think that's part of it. It's got to be a big part of it, I think. That brings home the importance of quality and standards. How would you actually implement quality and standards? Any ideas there? I think from a system perspective, we have to embed these things in hospital accreditation a little bit better. What kind of drugs do we need? What kind of equipment? What kind of training? What kind of access to uh, specialists do we need? All of those things are not clearly described. There's some vague stuff in, a, in hospital accreditation, but I don't think it's anywhere near where it needs to be. And you can see across the country the things that are now being called emergency care, you know, virtual emergency care, all of these things. Like access is such an issue that that risk of those things arising, just look at, frankly, the example in the United States where this has become more of an issue. So I think that's a huge part of moving forward because it serves our patients. We are so short of qualified emergency physicians and other providers. Hospitals are closing and Politicians just want to be able to say to people, we've produced more doctors, we've produced more emergency departments, we've produced more access points. Yes, they're not staffed or resourced properly. And it's the politician's dream to be able to say, yeah, we have enough doctors to provide emergency care without ever talking about standards. That's going to be left to us. Emergency medicine has to define the sort of things that it will provide to patients to fully fulfill its purpose in the system. It's a huge responsibility. And we're we're fighting people who want to cut corners in a difficult political and economic environment. That sounds like a bit of a mountain to climb to try and get good quality of care and standard of care integrated into our emergency departments. But it sounds like it's something that's been, shall I say, neglected since almost you know the inception of emergency medicine. So we've got a lot of work to do there. 
I want to move on to the fourth sphere in the future of emergency medicine, and that is disaster preparedness. And we covered this in detail in episode 100, and that was more in relation to the, at the time, new COVID pandemic. Now that we're post-pandemic, there are some new disasters in the headlines, like more floods and forest fires, etc. Dr. Chachanov, could you explain why disaster preparedness is key to the future of emergency medicine? It's pretty clear that disaster preparedness is really a proxy for general system preparedness. And, you know, we have many disasters going on in our emergency departments all the time. So it's very easy to take the principles from the disaster management textbook and and then apply them. We had CAPE, our Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, just recently had a, a meeting with the ministers of health from across Canada. And they asked a question about disaster management. And maybe I'll give you the very succinct points that I presented to them. One I've already said is that by the definition of a disaster where it's an an overwhelming demand relative to available resources, we are as a country and, and as specific hospitals and specific jurisdictions in disaster mode all the time. So we have a sort of chronic ongoing disaster in Canada. And the other thing that one sees in disasters is one sees an increase in preventable deaths and morbidity and mortality. And by any measure, we have that in Canada. And there, there are studies now that you know, originated a long time in Canada, have recently been repeated, and from Australia and from the UK that show that long waits in crowded emergency departments produce increased mortality in numbers that would be frightening if anyone was paying attention to them. So with that context, the lessons from the disaster chapter have to be applied to our emergency departments and our system every day. You know, we we have a role in promoting that and educating them about it. Hospitals have to be ready for surges. When I say surges, those are the many chronic disasters. And already doesn't mean, oh, yeah, we have a plan in somebody's cupboard or bookshelf. Surge plans have to be practiced and tested. And there have to be detailed plans which are validated across jurisdictions. And finally, I'm going to repeat a word that I think that we brought up before, which is redundancy. You have to have a system with redundancy. You have to have available beds for surges. You can't say we're ready for a disaster and have actually no available beds in your hospital. So those are some of the lessons that can be learned from the classic disaster preparedness chapter that can be applied to our emergency departments every day. All right. So redundancy is important. I'm hearing that hospitals need to be ready for disasters. And the way to be ready is really to practice them and have simulations and test them and then retest them and see what works, see what doesn't. And of course, the purpose of all this is really to decrease those preventable deaths. And it's interesting. I never really thought about, I like how you said the chronic ongoing disaster, which if you think about the definition of disaster, that it's the demand that outweighs resources, that's going on all the time. And so I think that's a good way of thinking about the current problems in emergency medicine in general. It's not just the floods and the fires and the hurricanes and the pandemics. It's a chronic ongoing sort of disaster. And we can learn a lot from disaster medicine in terms of shaping the future of emergency medicine. That's what we'll talk about disaster medicine and disaster preparedness. I want to move on to sphere number five, and that is adaptation and evolution. Now, that sounds like a really 
wide, broad, kind of fluffy topic, but you'll see what we're talking about soon. So Dr. Chachanov, first, what does adaptation and evolution really mean in the context of the future of emergency medicine? There are broad changes happening in the larger ecosystem, the larger world which impact our ecosystem, justice, equity, diversity and inclusion, Jedi, if you will. There are trends in that that are going to impact our workforce and the way we treat our populations there that we felt we couldn't ignore, despite the fact that there is the elephant in the room of access block. Especially in the context or the paradigm of complex systems, the only thing we know about the future is it's not going to look like we think it does, and it will be constantly changing. And so the one thing emergency medicine has to do is be able to adapt to that change. But let's evaluate them and let's learn from them and move on. You know, there's lots of lessons from the pandemic and they are there. I'm not sure they've been learned, you know, as we sort of go back to the same old, same old in terms of the old normal and that sort of thing. And that's the danger. If we don't really adapt a true learning health system model or approach, again, we will be stuck. And that's been part of the problem of our health systems in the past, I think. I want to zero in on some of the key parts of this umbrella of adaptation and evolution. You had mentioned climate change. You had mentioned JEDI, which is the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Also under this umbrella is a research network, ED Docs Embracing Leadership Roles in Digital Health, and having health policy and advocacy in EM training curriculum. So training our residents in health policy and advocacy. So let's just dig into each of these separately, because I think these these are really interesting and potentially major game changers in the future of emergency medicine. Dr. Chachanov, first, how can we adapt and evolve a research network to help in our situation in emergency medicine? We really push the notion of integrated networks, in this case, not integrated networks of care, but integrated networks of research, where researchers across the country and across disciplines collaborate with each other and then evolve their areas of research. David mentioned the concept of a learning health system. If you have an integrated network where everybody is collaborating and learning from each other, you will have a learning health research network. We have to make sure that research is fulfilling the quintuple aim, that we look at things, not tiny, tiny little windows, not some obscure interest of some doctor or other. We have to look at the things that will really help the problems that patients and populations present with to our emergency departments. So focus on what we see in the ED. And I guess the last thing is that there's a tremendous capacity to use technology for data sharing, not only among researchers, but amongst clinicians and and patients. So technology needs to be our friend in this. Yeah, I think this theme keeps on coming up of breaking down the silos. I mean, it's the same thing, not only between researchers and educators or researchers and administrators or hospitals or what have you. But even within the research community, there's these silos that really should be working together. As you say, you know, across the country and across disciplines, we need to have this integrated network of research and the research has to be asking the right questions. And if there's some way that everyone could agree on what the important questions are that hopefully keep in line with the quintuple purpose that we've been talking about, that would be huge. So under this umbrella of adaptation and change, we've talked about research networks. 
we've touched a little bit on climate change and on Jedi. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about was digital health or AI and how that can improve the state of emergency medicine. We've already talked about triaging with virtual care, but are there other ways besides that that you see digital health or AI improving the state of emergency medicine in the future? The potential as that develops to be some kind of supercharged scribe that essentially charts as you go that can bring up past histories immediately, uh, you know, recent procedures, etc. All the things that sometimes takes 10, 15 minutes to figure out at a computer desk. And then, of course, bring in all of the important research and evidence around care pathways and even differentials and that sort of thing. So I think there's definitely huge potential there. It's not going to replace emergency physicians anytime soon. And theoretically, it can work at a system level too, in terms of predicting patient flow, uh, how many beds are going to be needed today, and that sort of thing, which is fine. There's a great editorial written about that uh, from an AI perspective. But if you're still running your acute care wards at 120% occupancy, doesn't matter about predicting them, right? Uh, there, there are some more fundamental things than what AI is going to be able to. Uh, so there's still still going to be a human part of this. Well, I think that um, I, I will start with a story, and it's uh, a story that uh, Michael Schul submitted uh, as part of uh, his contribution to the task force. There's a couple, two people in a car, let's say from Canada, and they're in a rural Ireland, and they are lost. And they stop by the side of the road. There's no internet where they are, no Wi-Fi. And they ask this old guy, they say, we're trying to get to Dublin. Can you give us directions? And he just thinks for a minute and he goes, Dublin, eh? Yeah, I wouldn't have started from here. And that's all he says. And the point of it is, we're lost. This is a pretty lousy place to start with. But all we can say is we know where we want to go. It's a long way. We find ourselves in a place that we didn't imagine being in, but we need to use every resource like the car or whatever else was in there that we have at our disposal to try to get where we want to go. So a couple of things, you know, the car is a tool. Digital health is a tool. The questions to be asked are, where do we want to go? And it gets back to David's, what is our purpose? We have to know where we want to get to. We have to think about the quintuple purpose. And then we have to figure out what tools we have to help us get there. And digital health offers an enormous number of tools, virtual care just being one of them, AI being another. But we can blow it if we don't use them right. I think the other thing that's worth talking about just sort of using that story is who's in the car? Like who's actually lost? Is it us? Is it our patients? And I think as I consider this, I think it's sort of all of us. We're all in the car together. We need digital health tools to help patients be more autonomous and look after their own care, make their own appointments and follow up, have their own results. And physicians and the healthcare network need to use this as well. So I'm, you know, you called yourself an optimist, Anton. I am as well. I think that we can use this set of tools to our advantage, but we have to know first that we're lost. And I think we mostly do. And we have to know where we're going. I've been lost for 52 years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The last little part of the umbrella under adaptation and evolution that I wanted to talk about has to do with education, which is up my alley. 
That is envisioning how we teach our trainees to become more knowledgeable about health policy and advocacy. Dr. Chichinov, any ideas? I mean, our, our trainees already have a lot to learn about emergency medicine. And, you know, I, I can already imagine some people thinking, well, it's a lot more important for them to know how to run a cardiac arrest and how to pick up a pulmonary embolism than it is to learn all about health policy and advocacy. How do you suggest that we integrate this in a realistic way into training? I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Anton. We actually, at the University of Manitoba, we had a rotation, a longitudinal rotation on public affairs, health policy, administration, and leadership. And uh, and we really did talk a lot about health system science. But in the end, it sort of faded away because there were so many pressures within the residency program that it got squeezed out, which is a shame. But a reflection of the fact that I think that the importance of public affairs and emergency medicine to our future isn't really fully appreciated. You know, one of the things that David likes ranting about is how emergency departments have been described as the canary in the coal mine and how that is such a, a passive and ultimately fatal description of our role. The whole theme of the Empower Report is that we can be active and engage and change things. And so I think that message needs to come out and it needs to be reflected in our educational curriculum. It needs to not be squeezed out and probably needs to be part of a larger health system sciences curriculum that does exist in other curricula elsewhere, I guess, probably more in the States than here. But it's it's probably as important long term for the future of emergency medicine as is all of the classical training like ACLS and whatever else you choose to, to talk about. Some of that literature talks about three pillars of education uh, or research, basic science, clinical sciences, and health system science. And you need all three to practice in a modern healthcare system and to serve your patients. Each is important. The health system science is often thought of as the broccoli of education and people avoid it. And it's hard to know where it fits because, you know, students and residents study to the exam, right? And so clinical care is especially important in the residency, but these will be the agents of change in the future, right? And so that's where we may have some opportunity in this, in our current change over to competency-based education, where we have a transition to practice section. And I think the transition to practice section should be really not just about clinical care and managing a busy department, let's say, but understanding uh, the system more and understanding uh, how that may save more of your patients' lives than knowing the latest drug that came out for such and such. Not that that isn't important. It's tough, right? I mean, (laughs) being a physician, being an emergency physician, there's just so much to know, but it's really an important part of what we're doing. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, back during the peak of my personal burnout during the COVID pandemic, my way of coping, one of the ways of me coping was to just think one patient at a time and just zero in on just treating that patient in front of me, get that done, and then move on to the next patient and just block out everything else. But I think now we're in a time post-pandemic where we really can and should start to think about these other things in terms of training for ourselves and for our trainees to think about how we can improve emergency medicine just outside taking care of one patient at a time. So I do encourage those of you who are post-burnout, hopefully you're post-burnout and not still in the throes of burnout, 
to be able to think forward rather than just treading water and seeing one patient at a time sort of thing. And that segues into one of the last things I'd like to talk about, which is preventing burnout. You know, for wellness over the last few years, we've all heard about, you know, being outdoors and doing lots of exercise and meditating and relaxing with our friends. And and that's all fine and dandy. But one of the themes that has come through this podcast is that preventing burnout has a lot to do with breaking down the silos and strengthening the whole community, not only improving our relationships within our departments, but within the cities, breaking down the silos within the province, between the provinces, between countries even. This brings up, you know, how do we develop a sense of shared purpose with our EM teams and the whole EM community? It speaks to a great paper put out, I think, about one or two years ago by the National Academies of Science in in the States around looking at burnout through a systems lens and how important uh, the improving systems is to reducing individual burnout. I think if we focus on individuals and tell them they need more exercise or more yoga or et cetera, not that those things aren't, you know, potentially worthwhile if they work for you, but that uh, so much of this has to do with how the system works. And, uh, that's where we really need to put some concentration into building. You know, if we have resilient systems, we will have resilient workers for the most part. It's not one for one, obviously, but it's such an important part of what we do. You know, Anton, when you're talking about your own burnout, and I think we could each tell a story about our burnout, it made me think about burnout and silos and systems. And one of the things that the pandemic has done and, and burnout and emergency medicine has done is it makes us our own individual silos. We're so busy looking after ourselves that we can't really look outside ourselves. And I think it exacerbates the problem. And it really feels to us as if that on a program level is what's happening in medicine. Silos looking inwardly, trying to make sure that they can deliver their product. And in fact, they can't deliver their product that way. And it makes the entire system uh, dysfunctional. So part of, you know, what we I think we need to do as individuals is open ourselves up to other people. Everybody knows that. But we need to do that as a system, too. And one of the people we spoke to in our consultations gave a very, to me, impactful metaphor that I've quoted a few times before. It just envisages that in a quintessential Canadian metaphor, us at the top of a hill, a snowy hill in the snow with a, with a snowball in our hands, and it's just emergency medicine, hasn't accomplished anything, but it's got great potential. And if we let it roll downhill, it will pick up those individual other little snowball silos, burnt out individuals and systems. And as it gains momentum, it will, as he described it, become this irresistible force that's actually not emergency medicine. It's not internal medicine. It's not nursing or medicine. It's everybody who has felt so uh, siloed and nobody will recognize where it originated. And I think part of what we want people to feel is this is the snowball at the part of the hill. It's only got potential. It only will affect change if everybody is part of it and it becomes a collective part of that uh, irresistible force. That shared purpose isn't just an abstract notion. It's actually how we get through this mess and get to the future. If we have resilient systems, we'll have resilient EM providers. That's a good way of thinking about it. All right, gentlemen, any last words of wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners with when it comes to the future of emergency medicine? 
you know, I'm an optimist as well. I guess we wouldn't be doing it. We, the three of us wouldn't be here if we weren't. And I do understand the metaphor of the uh, canary in the coal mine, but it is passive and it is negative. We have to somehow turn our depression, our frustration, our, our anger into agency. And, and we do have agency. We do have power as emergency physicians to uh, affect change. It needs to be at, at a system level and we need a whole bunch of coalition building to make it work. But I think we can and we must for the patients we serve. Well, I hope this podcast has at minimum inspired our listeners to think about the wider issues in our healthcare systems and how these issues interact with emergency medicine and how they might contribute to making EM better by addressing some of these issues in a solution-focused way. Thanks so much, both of you, for your generous time that you've given to these important issues and to this podcast and for all your thoughtful insights. Viva emergency medicine. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, uh, Anton. Thanks for the opportunity, Anton. We really appreciate it. 